so excited about this passage we're preaching on this morning. Most of you know this fall we are studying 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 to learn how Paul corrects our practice of spiritual gifts and how Paul encourages our pursuit of spiritual gifts. And I wanted to start with an illustration about how loving it can be to share spiritual gifts. This is from an email I received from a friend just a little while back who's been going through a very difficult season. Listen to what he wrote to me. He says, I'm still trying to make sense of something that happened a couple of weeks ago. A new couple visited our church Sunday who are more on the charismatic side of things. God ended up having us pray together after the service. As they prayed, God led them to pray for things they could not have known, things I've only spoken to the Lord. At one point, the woman prayed in tongues and the husband interpreted, and the prayer touched on matters that immediately made me weep. It was so accurate that later I texted the person who invited them and asked if he had told them about my situation. He had not. The long and short, it was an encouragement to continue, to not lose heart, to trust that God is with me, is in this with me. Pretty awesome. I think so, pretty awesome. Now, can you feel how encouraging it would have been for my friends to be on the receiving end of those spiritual gifts? And can you feel the love that would have moved that couple to take the risk, a brand new church that they were visiting, to pray for someone in that church who they did not know, and to take the risk of sharing those spiritual gifts with him? Can you feel the encouragement that came to my friend and the love that moved them to take that risk? Can you, can you feel that? Very powerful, very encouraging. Now, like I said last week, that kind of talk, um, that those kind of spiritual gifts might concern some of you. Because it may be that you're from a church background where you were taught that those kinds of gifts are no longer being given. Godly people teach that. Some of my friends teach that, okay? Or it may be that you are from a situation, you've had a background where you've been hurt by the abuse of spiritual gifts. And you're just like, ooh, no, you know, I've been hurt by that kind of thing. And I understand there are going to be lots of questions, and we're from different backgrounds, but here's what we want to do in the last week, last two weeks, next few weeks. We want to show you what we elders believe from the Scripture, because we believe from the Bible that we are called, that the Bible calls us to pursue those kinds of gifts. We want to pursue them lovingly, humbly, wisely, but it's a matter, of, we think, of obedience to pursue them. Now, godly people can disagree on this question, right? People do disagree, but we want to share with you what we see in the Scriptures so that you can study it and think about it. Our goal is to persuade you not because of what we say, but because of what the Bible says. Our goal is to have you see in the Bible that these spiritual gifts are still being given. So, lots of time, lots of space, but this is what we're pursuing these few weeks. Now, today we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians 13. Now here's some context for it. At the end of chapter 12, 
In verse 31, Paul urges us to earnestly desire the higher gifts, and he says he will show us the more excellent way to do that. Now, he doesn't tell us what the higher gifts are until chapter 14. We'll get there. But he does tell us what the higher way is here in chapter 13. Now, as we read this chapter, some of you might be a little bit surprised because you've heard this chapter quoted at at weddings. How many have heard 1 Corinthians 13 quoted at a wedding? Okay, just probably about all of us. And so you think, well, this this is a wedding passage. What does that have to do with spiritual gifts? And you'll be surprised to discover this morning that when Paul wrote this passage, it was about spiritual gifts. It has application to weddings, but it's mostly initially about spiritual gifts. And it's a very powerful passage about spiritual gifts because he tells us how we should pursue spiritual gifts. What is the the more excellent way to pursue spiritual gifts? So let's start with verses one through three and ask Paul, what happens if I don't have love? Sobering first three verses, and I'm praying that God will help us to feel the, the weight of this. Verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now notice three times in these verses, Paul repeats the phrase, but have not love. So Paul wants to tell us what will happen if we exercise, pursue spiritual gifts without love. So what will happen? Verse one, he mentions speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. That's a reference to the gift of of speaking in tongues. And Paul says that if we speak in tongues without love, then we'll be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which I think means it's gonna just be hurting people's ears probably, right? No benefit whatsoever will happen then. Verse two, Paul talks about us having prophetic powers, the gift of prophecy where God gives you a revelation that you speak something and others are benefited. He's talking about supernatural knowledge where he lets you know things you couldn't otherwise have known like that couple who prayed for my friends. He talks about having a gift of faith that can move mountains. Wouldn't that be something? And we might think that if we can have those kinds of gifts then then we are really something. But what Paul says that if we do that without love, we are nothing, nothing. Verse three. He talks about us giving away all our possessions to care for the poor. He talks about us being willing to be burned to death for the gospel. Made me think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, right? And we're talking about both of these are pictures of complete and total sacrifice. Now, we might think that if we did something like that, then when we entered heaven, there'd be this big, loud, well done, good and faithful servant, 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 Okay, But Paul says that if we do those actions without love, we gain nothing. We will hear nothing. Stunning. 
So if we pursue spiritual gifts without love, we will not help others, we will be nothing, and we will gain nothing. Think about it like this. Imagine that you are a scuba diver, have some scuba divers here, and you were going on a scuba, scuba diving boat, and uh, I don't do that, but anyways, they're scuba diving boats, right? And, um, and you're thinking, okay, it's very important. I want to make sure I t- what's most important to take. I want to make sure I take all the most important things because once you're on the boat, there's nothing, no equipment on the boat. You're just heading out there, and that's all you got. So you want to make sure you're, you've got the most important things. So you've got your, 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 you know, your mask, and you've got your, your fins, right? You've got your, uh, you've got your GoPro waterproof video camera. You've got your if you do spear fishing. You get that. You got maybe a weight belt. Okay, so okay, got this, got this. So you want to make sure you got the most important things all packed up, and you get on the boat, and the boat leaves the dock, and all of a sudden it dawns on you the air tanks. Okay, now I don't think it doesn't sound like most of you are scuba divers. That would be a problem. You're not going to do much scuba diving without air. Do you know what? Okay, without air tanks. Like like you. The point of the illustration. I'll just tell you. You forgot the most important thing. Okay, that's the most, like that's way more important than anything else. You forgot the most important thing. And that's the point that Paul wants to make here. Because we can get so excited about spiritual gifts, and they are, they are precious, and God works, and he does some amazing things. But we can get so excited about spiritual gifts that we neglect the most important thing, which is love. So don't forget the air in the tanks. Don't forget the love in your heart. Don't be so distracted with the excitement of spiritual gifts that you neglect, why am I doing this? Why am I excited? What am I looking for here? Am I doing this for the sake of love? Church, does that make sense? We are not going to pursue spiritual gifts here apart from love. We must do this for the sake of love. That's what Paul is saying here. Next question Paul wants to ask is, well, what is love? And in verses four through seven, this is really interesting. He answers the question, but instead of giving us a, like a one-sentence, really crisp definition of love, he lists, I counted them, there's 15, right? 15 descriptions of love. And I think the reason he does this is he wants to help us get a, get a picture, a tangible, concrete, practical picture of what it would mean to pursue gifts for the sake of love, what it would mean to desire gifts because of love. So let's go through this list. I've, I've got some of them clumped together. I'll give you some illustrations. And, we, and what Paul wants us to get here is, is a picture of, okay, that, that's what it, what it would look like to pursue these gifts for the sake of love. Verse four, start there. Love is patient and kind. I put those together because those, those fit. So the more excellent way to pursue spiritual gifts is with love, which would mean pursuing them with patience and kindness. Now, there's all kinds of ways that, that patience and kindness will shape and, and mold how we pursue spiritual gifts, but here's what I thought of, and that is for those in our church for whom this is brand new. Like I said earlier, you're coming from a different background, and you aren't so sure yet about spiritual gifts, and you know, you're open to studying, but you're just you know, put on the brakes a little bit here. And be patient with those people that are in our midst, okay? They'll have plenty of reason to be patient with you for some things. You be patient with them for this. Because we want this to be a place where we can all study the scriptures, pray, think, 
and learn and not feel any kind of pressure or we have to supposed to be doing something at all. So can you see how patience and kindness would temper those who are like 100 yards ahead or 100 meters ahead in, in, in the race? Does that make sense? Patience and kindness regarding those who are still processing this, still thinking about this, still praying about this. Continue in verse 4. Love does not envy or boast. So that's the way of love. You're pursuing spiritual gifts, but there is no envying in you, and there is no boasting coming from you. Now, what might that look like? Well, maybe, maybe you have a friend who shares in home group this week that at work there was somebody who was sick, and, and God just put upon their heart, I should pray for this person. And so at an appropriate time, off-company time, took time to pray, and as they prayed, God like really, really healed them, like really healed them. They were healed, like healed, and that opened a door for the gospel. It was an amazing thing. And while your friend is sharing that at home group, there is no envy in you at all. Just You're saying, praise God. Glory to you, Jesus. Thank you for blessing my friend to be able to do that, advance the gospel. No envy. That's the path of love. See that? No envy for what gifts other people receive. And no boastfulness. Maybe you're the one who prayed for somebody at work and God healed them and a door was opened for the gospel and beautiful things happened. But then there wouldn't be any desire in you to want to make yourself look good by telling other people that story. You might tell other people the story for the glory of Jesus, but what's in your heart is not, I'm looking good here. This is going to make me look good. We all deal with that, right? So no envy, no boasting. Keep reading, verses 4 and 5. It is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, these all go together. Um, the way to pursue spiritual gifts is without any arrogance, rudeness, insisting on my own way, irritableness, or resentfulness. Here's an example. Let's say that here on a Friday morning, um, God brings something into your heart, sense it's him, a verse to be shared, a prophetic word to be shared, and so you come up and share with me or whichever elder is in that role that morning, and, and that elder shares with you, oh, this sounds like a beautiful word of prophecy, but, but we've already had... Um, enough this morning. You know, Paul does mention in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, there's a certain limit here, and we, we've had enough. Let's pray about that being shared next week. I think that may be what God is doing here. Now, that, that would feel a little bit disappointing to you, we get that, but, but you would receive that without any arrogance or rudeness or insisting on your own way or being irritable or being resentful. You would just trust, say, okay, Lord, I trust you and, uh, and, and lead for next week. Does that make sense? This is how spiritual gifts work. Keep going in verse 6. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Okay, so the way of love, the, the, the more excellent way to pursue spiritual gifts is with, without rejoicing in wrongdoing and instead rejoicing in the truth. So I try to think of an illustration. I mean, again, there's lots of ways that that would apply, but, but here's one. Let's say that you're in home group this week. And somebody brings a word of prophecy with great passion, great boldness, great eloquence, and, and you're thinking, that's not really biblical. That's not really truth. So what should you do in that case? Well, you, I mean, you want to be gracious to them. You want to think the best. And, 
you don't affirm, thank you for, for sharing. Um, maybe take them aside afterwards. Can, maybe, maybe share with the group. God will give you wisdom if you're the home group leader. But uh, point out to them more clearly what the Bible teaches about these things. Because we, we want to rejoice in the truth. We want there to be truth, biblical truth, which is the focal point of spiritual gifts. Then verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, now that's puzzling there. Uh, one reason is believe all things. We're not supposed to believe all things. Uh, here's, here's three observations that helped me understand what these four phrases mean. I'll share them with you so that you can do some more thinking about them. First observation is that the word translated all things, which takes place four times in verse seven, that word can have the meaning always. So it would mean instead love always bears, always believes, always hopes, always endures. And there are some translations that translate it that way, like the New International Version, for example, because that is a possible meaning. Second observation, what does Paul mean by believing? Well, when Paul talks about believing, almost always he's talking about a God word believing. We're trusting all that God promises to be to us in Christ. So it's, more, it's likely that's what he's talking about here. So always believing, trusting God's promises, hoping in God's promises. And then third, notice, see if you agree with this, that the first and last statements kind of are saying the same thing, to bear all things is very much the same as enduring all things. Those are very much overlapping ideas. And the middle two phrases are similar, believing God's promises, hoping in God's promises. Those, those are definitely overlapping ideas. So here's what I think Paul is saying. He's saying that, first and last phrases, the way of love is to always bear and endure whatever we need to for the sake of the benefit of our brothers and sisters. We're called to always bear and endure for their sake. And the way we can do that is by those two middle phrases, by always trusting and hoping in all that God has promised to be to us in Jesus Christ. Now let me elaborate on this because, see, I think this is the key for how to be loving. For example, Galatians chapter five, verse six, Paul says that faith works itself out in love. So love comes from faith. In Colossians 1, 4 and 5, Paul says that the reason we love others is because of the hope that we have. So faith and hope are the, the way that we love. When we're not loving other people, which happens, right? The problem is in our faith and hope. We're not putting our faith and hope in all that God has promised in the word to be to us in Christ Jesus. So here's how this would work. Let's say that you find that you're, you're not loving other people. You're not really being willing to bear all things for your brothers and sisters. You're not really being to always endure whatever it might mean necessary for the sake of your brothers and sisters. What do you do? Well, I would encourage you to, to take some time and to stop and to set your heart upon the truth of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It all starts there. That's the most blazing, glorious picture of God's love for us. God came to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus walked on planet earth, changes everything. God has lived on planet earth and God died in the person of Jesus for our sins. And he promises that if we will trust Jesus, we will be forgiven. His power will change us, free us, 
change our hearts, and he will pour his love into our hearts. So you start by just thinking about the cross, and then you, you trust Jesus Christ. I trust you, Jesus, forgive me. And as you trust him to forgive you, fresh assurance of forgiveness will be poured into your heart. You will know that you're forgiven. And as you're trusting him, you will feel your heart starts to change. The worries that were distracting you, the, the, the bitterness that was, that was defiling your heart, those things will be washed away. God will start changing you, and he will pour his love into your heart as you pray, as you worship, as you think about the truth of his word. He will pour his love into your heart, and when God, you know this, when God pours his love into your heart, everything changes. Everything changes in us. You are secured. You are established. You, you know that your eternity is going to be glorious because he secured it through the cross. Your heart is filled with joy because nothing is more delightful than feeling, seeing, knowing, experiencing God's love. And that will make you overflow in love for other people so that you will be willing to always bear, always endure for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? So it's by faith and hope that we're able to walk the path of love, of bearing always, enduring always, which might mean something like, I wrote down two examples here. What are they? I forgot them. Like staying up late after home group to pray for someone. Enduring loss of sleep as you're staying up late to pray for someone. Or maybe enduring the fear of public speaking by next Friday, standing up and sharing a spiritual gift with, with all of these people here, which is not easy to do. We get it. It's not easy at all. But do you see how that works? Always bearing, always enduring, because we're always believing and because we're always hoping in all of God's promises for us in Christ. So that's what it means to walk the higher way, the more excellent way of pursuing spiritual gifts. It's the path of love, which are marked by these 15 descriptions. So the, the bar is high, isn't it? Here's the bar. That's what it means to pursue spiritual gifts. And here's the beautiful thing, Grace Church. God will enable us to do that. We, let's just be real here, we cannot do that by ourselves. You can't grit your teeth enough to live out even one of those things the way we're supposed to, right? But when we turn to Christ, trust him, ask for his help, the Holy Spirit will come, change our hearts, fill our hearts, and love will grow, love will flow. He will do it in us. Now, Paul has one more question he wants to answer in this passage, and this is a crucial question for a couple of different reasons. The question is, why is love more important than spiritual gifts? And his answer is that love is more important than spiritual gifts because the time is coming when spiritual gifts will be no more, but love will continue. Spiritual gifts will end, but love will not end. Love will go on forever, which shows you what's most important. Okay, quiz time, church. Which is more important, spiritual gifts or love? 100%. Go to the head of the class. Good job. Okay, now... Look at what he says in verses 8 through 13. But again, the, the main theme here is that there will come a time when spiritual gifts will cease, but love will go on forever, which shows that love is most important. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, this is when this change happens, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now notice that spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, supernatural knowledge, they will pass away when? When the perfect comes. So I'll underline that in your Bibles right there in verse 10. So when does the perfect come? That's the million Durham question, okay? When does the perfect come? And there are different opinions amongst God's people. Different answers are given. Some who love the Lord and love the scriptures, and have studied the scriptures, believe that the perfect coming is a description of the completion of the New Testament scriptures. That that is the perfect, the completion of the New Testament scriptures, which happens towards the end of the first century. Godly people believe that. And see what the implications of that. that that's why many people believe that spiritual gifts are no longer being given. Because if the perfect has already come, then spiritual gifts are no longer being given. Does that make sense? So this is why our brothers and sisters who we love believe, some of them believe, that spiritual gifts are no longer being given. Other people who love the Lord and study the scriptures have come to a different conclusion. That the perfect is not the completion of the New Testament scriptures, but that the perfect is the second coming of Christ. And see what that means. If, if the perfect is the second coming of Christ, which has not happened yet, then that means that spiritual gifts have not ceased. That means that God is still giving supernatural spiritual gifts, which means we should pursue them. So, so there's a problem. Now, let me just stress, we can love each other who have these different opinions, right? Not, not can, we must love each other who have these different opinions, right? But a church can't not decide because we're either going to pursue them or not, right? And the elders of Grace Church, our study has brought us to conclude that the perfect is not a description of the completion of the New Testament scriptures, but that the perfect is a description of the second coming of Christ, which means that spiritual gifts will end at some time in the future when Jesus comes back, but God is still wanting to give them today. So that's why we are pursuing spiritual gifts here is because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I'd like to persuade you that that's what this passage is teaching. And, and the way to do that is I want to give you this chart. It'll be up on the screen here. Because throughout these verses, Paul contrasts what's true now before the perfect comes with what is true after the perfect comes. There it is. Look at that. Thank you, Nathalie. 
And I want to walk through each of these verses and ask the question, does this fit the perfect as the completion of Scripture? Or does this fit the perfect as the second coming of Christ? Which fits these contrasts better? And I want to walk through this in some detail because, again, we don't want anyone pursuing spiritual gifts here just because that's what the elders believe. That is not enough for you. You need to see this in the Bible for yourself. You, you need, we're not a strong enough foundation for you. Take my word for it. You need the Bible, okay? And we don't want anybody to believe that unless you're persuaded from the Bible. So that's why I want to walk through this in some detail. So which interpretation fits these verses better? The view that the perfect is the completion of the New Testament in late in the first century, or the interpretation that the perfect is the second coming of Christ? So let's start with verse 11. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. That's what he's saying was true before the perfect comes. But when the perfect comes, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So he's using an illustration to show that before the perfect comes, the church is like children. And after the perfect comes, the church is mature adults. Now let's see if that fits taking the perfect as the completion of Scripture. That would mean that the early church, before the scriptures were completed, the early church was like children compared to us with the completed scriptures who are adults. Now I just want to ask you, think about the early church. We read about them in the book of Acts and think about us today. Are they like children compared to us who are adults? Well, it's great that we have the completed scriptures, but they did have the apostles and they did have a lot of the scriptures. And and they do some pretty awesome things in the book of Acts. I mean, they had their immaturities just like we do today. I don't see a big distinction there between the early church and us. Does that make sense? It doesn't seem to make sense that, well, we're the adults and, and they were, were, were children. But now let's try the understanding of the perfect as the second coming of Christ. That would mean that all of us today, early church, us today, before Jesus comes back, we are like children compared to what we are going to be when Jesus comes back we're resurrected from the dead, we're transformed, we're glorified, we're seeing him face to face. Does that fit that, that we are like children today compared to what it's gonna be like when we are in heaven? I think that does fit. That totally fits. Does that make sense? So we're trying to ask the question, which understanding of the perfect fits what Paul says in verse 11? And I think what fits there best is to take the perfect as the second coming of Christ. Now, verse 12, Paul says that before the perfect comes, we see in a mirror dimly, and after the perfect comes, we will see face to face. So does that fit with the perfect being the completion of Scripture? So did the early church, before they had Scripture completed, did the early church see in a mirror dimly and us now, we see face to face. Well, I mean, th think about it. it. It's true, again, we have more scripture and praise God for it. We love God's word. But they did, like I said, they had the apostles. Okay, they, they had much of the scriptures. And so I'm not sure that we know all that much more than the early church did. So you would describe it like, like they're seeing through a mirror dimly, but we're seeing face to face. 
And not only that, that phrase seeing face to face is a phrase used many times in the Old Testament to describe seeing God face to face, like seeing him. And if you think about that, that's not gonna happen until the second coming when we see God right before us in the person of Jesus Christ face to face. You do understand that, right? The day is coming, those of you who are trusting Jesus Christ, that you will stand before Jesus Christ face to face. That is in your future. That is certain. That is coming. And that, I think, is what Paul is talking about here. So, seeing face to face and the huge contrast between seeing through a mirror dimly versus seeing face to face seems to point more to the fact that we today, with all the knowledge that we have, it's seeing through a mirror dimly compared to what it's gonna be like seeing Jesus face to face where faith turns to sight. Does that make sense? So I think that taking the perfect as the second coming of Christ fits that beginning of verse 12 verse better. Then look at the end of verse 12. Paul says that when the perfect comes, we will know as fully as we have been known. This is maybe the most powerful illustration of this in this passage. Paul wants us to think of how fully God knows us. How fully have you been known by God? Let me tell you, he knows you fully, inside and out, every detail of your life. There is nothing hidden from his eyes. He knows everything about you perfectly. He knows you fully. And Paul is saying that when the perfect comes, we will know God as fully as we have been known by God. Now, the completed scriptures, the Bible, totally helps us know God. We love our Bibles. I hope you love your Bible. Hope you read your Bible, study your Bible. We love the scriptures. But we will not know God as fully as we've been known until heaven. We know him now. We're growing in our knowledge of him, but we will not know him as fully as we've been known until heaven. And so each of those three sections of 1 Corinthians 13 fits best with the understanding of the perfect as the second coming of Christ, not with the perfect as the completion of Scripture. But now, can you see how those who don't think gifts are still being given, can you see why they would believe that if they take the perfect as the completion of Scriptures? You can see that, right? So we want to be charitable, right? We're, we're all, we all love Jesus. We think the best. But I hope that I've started to persuade you that the perfect is the second coming of Christ. And I would just urge you to keep reading over this passage. Keep studying this. Keep pondering this. Email me questions that you might have. Let's keep talking about this. I want you to see it from the word of God itself. But our conclusion as elders is that the perfect is the second coming of Christ. And this is really important because this is one of the clearest passages which tells us that there is a time when spiritual gifts will cease. When Jesus returns, we will no longer need gifts of healings, for example, because we're all gonna be healed instantly. We no longer are gonna need miracles because everything's gonna be perfect. Nothing needs to be changed. We're no, no longer gonna need gifts of prophecy or knowledge because we will all see God face to face. Faith will be turned to, to sight. So spiritual gifts will stop when Jesus returns, but what won't stop?
love. Spiritual gifts will stop when Jesus returns. Love will continue. So don't ever pursue spiritual gifts without love because love is more important than spiritual gifts. That's a huge point that Paul's making here. Think about heaven, a place of perfect love. God's perfect love for you, perfect love, his love filling your heart, your perfect love for God. Your love is gonna be free from distraction, free from lukewarmness, free from blah, whatever. It's gonna be perfect love for God. God's perfect love pouring into your heart, your perfect love responding back to God, and the overflow of God's love for you, perfect love for our brothers and sisters. Heaven is going to be a world of perfect love, increasing, growing, expanding forever. Spiritual gifts are gonna stop, but love will continue. So what does this mean for us? Let me give you three takeaways. First, since gifts continue until Jesus returns, we should earnestly desire them now. Does that make sense? Jesus has not yet returned. The perfect has not yet come, which means gifts have not ceased, which means God is still giving gifts. God has gifts he wants to give to you that you then would share them with your brothers and sisters and they will be blessed. They will be encouraged. They will be strengthened. They'll be built up. Jesus will be glorified. God will be praised. The gospel will advance. There's gifts he's planning on giving you, he's wanting to give you because they're still being given since he has not come back yet. So therefore, since gifts continue until Jesus returns, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That's the first takeaway. Second, since gifts will stop and love will continue, love is more important than the gifts. Don't let gifts take the place of love. Don't let gifts distract you from love. Pursue gifts for the sake of love. You wouldn't neglect taking the air tanks on a scuba trip. Don't neglect taking love as you pursue spiritual gifts. That's the most important part. Third, since gifts benefit others, pursuing love includes pursuing gifts. It's a very strong, powerful implication that Paul has here. If we're going to be men and women of love, we will pursue spiritual gifts. Let that just rest upon you, church. So before home group, maybe you pray, Lord, bring, bring whatever gifts you might choose to give to me so I can build up my brothers and sisters tonight. Pray for that. Maybe Thursday night before Friday morning, Lord, whatever you'd want to do in me, through me, for the glory of your name, grant it. Maybe before, every day before you go to work or you're with your kids or you have a meeting, Lord, give me whatever gifts you'd have for me. Pursue gifts. And as we do that, as we pray, as we earnestly desire, God will give us gifts. God's people will be encouraged. Jesus Christ will be glorified and will be blessed to have a hand in all of that. Let's stand. I want to pray.
Father, I ask for your power to use your word now to touch exactly what each of us needs to hear from this passage this morning. We're all in different places, and this passage has something to say to each one of us this morning. So grant it, I pray, for the glory of your name. I pray, Lord, that you would assure us of your love for us so that we would be freed to love. And I pray that you would stir in our hearts how vital it is to be loving because that's what's most important. So come and work through these worship songs now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>